So it's 2022 and we've just slipped into what many are calling the endemic. It's been a difficult time for students during the pandemic, restrictions, mask mandates, mass vaccination and school closures. We are now seeing a return to a more traditional in-person school for students across the nation. But what has remained the same is the pervasive anti-Black racism that seeps into every community across the nation. We hear headlines like, teacher wearing blackface for local school event sent home while school board investigates. Family of an elementary school aged student lodged a formal complaint with the local school board over concerns of excessive discipline and targeting behaviors deemed inappropriate by the school principal. These are common and regular occurrences that I know we are experiencing here in our school board as well. Students and families share their stories about their experiences in classroom spaces, hallways, and even on the yard that are having significant impacts, not just on the well-being of our students, but on their overall success and achievement from K through 12. So welcome, my name is Eleanor McIntosh, my pronouns she and her, and I'm going to be your facilitator for this inaugural episode of Calling Up, a podcast series focused on exploring the various manifestations of anti-Black racism in education. Today in this episode of Calling Up, our guest panel will examine how does anti-Black racism show up for our Black students? Joining us today for our podcast is a powerhouse lineup of notable educators with over 40 years of collective experience working in public schools. So let's meet our panel. I'm going to start with Miss Nadia Nemhart Hunt. I'm excited to be here, Eleanor, to join this inaugural um, episode. I am Vice Principal with DDSB in the elementary panel. Perfect. Thank you, Nadia, and welcome. Moving on to Anthony. Hi, Anthony Phelan. I am a vice principal in the secondary panel and also very excited to be here. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks for joining us today in this conversation. Nazneen. Hello, everyone. I'm Nazneen Dindar. My pronouns are she and her. And I am an elementary school principal with DDSB. Great. Welcome, Naz. And last but certainly not least, Nicholas. Hello, everyone. I'm Nicholas Barham from Durham Family and Cultural Center, formerly known as Side by Side Family Center. Uh, my pronouns are he and him, and I'm happy to be here as well. Fabulous. Thank you. So welcome to our guest panel. Tell us a little bit more about what is it that you are hearing and seeing from our students and families within our schools as it pertains to some of those underlying pieces around anti-Black racism. Coming from, coming from the high school, um, I have uh, obviously the, the, the good fortune of having students that can come and advocate for themselves in the office. And so, yeah, some of the some of the, the the issues that come to me from our from our students are issues around surveillance, um, the feeling of being over surveilled, um, and and it comes from it it comes from 
the 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 notion of um, what is expected in terms of student behavior in a school, mm. um, and and then from the students themselves, how they express themselves, and is there a a gap between what some of the adults in the school expect in terms of behavior and um, and how the students express themselves in terms of joy and exuberance and having fun being in a building. I mean, post-pandemic, being in a building where they can see each other's faces and they can, right? right. And they can, yeah, and, 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 and even, uh, you know, take part in extra, so it's a really exciting time. And so we are seeing our students really happy and, um, boisterous, and then uh, feeling that because they're, there's their their of their excitement and maybe the volume of the excitement um, that they're being watched and looked at, and not necessarily in a positive way. Like, what is the impact for them around you know being perhaps watched, overwatched while they're trying to enjoy? their time within their educational day. What does that mean, Naz? It's interesting that Anthony should talk about um, students coming forward about how they're over surveilled. Sometimes I think what I am noticing and and, and I try to bring to staff's attention and, and I'm trying to be very aware of is, is almost who we don't see, who we don't see when we're out there. So on a schoolyard and there are a number of students that are maybe there's some behavior going on that you're not okay with. And you look over and you, who do, who are the ones you address? Who are the ones you call out? Are you calling out the black students? That's what I tend to hear from my students a lot is that why isn't anybody noticing when these other people are doing the same thing? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not even feeling over surveilled. What bothers them is what is excused in others that isn't excused in them. I talk to staff constantly to say to them, even in their own unconscious ways, when they're out there on the schoolyard and they're watching kids playing, where do their eyes go? And what do they notice first? Mm. Like really being aware of what you're not seeing or what you're forgiving and seeing, but maybe not judging as badly. Interesting. Let, let's dig into that notion of uh, norms of behavior, if you will, because I think that that's an added element of the conversation that we're having right now, because Anthony alluded to it when he talked about um, the ways that we attend to traditional behavior expectations or ways of moving around a building. So, for example, we move, you know, uh, in a paced way, in a quiet manner, you know, that kind of thing, orderly. And so, so what does this mean in terms of the roots of those who are the adults in the building? And why is it that they are drawn to the behaviors that are seen as outside of the norms of behavior expectation? Where does that, where does that come from? Why are we seeing this difference between groups of students? Because really, in the end, uh, you know, students, and I'm sure not just Black students, are um, exhibiting uh, non-traditional or non-accepted forms of behavior that Anthony alluded to, like spirited conversation, joy. So, so why are we drawn to the black students, Nicholas? So, I think it's, it's it's important to note that you know, for one, you know, I'll start with blackness is not mon a monolith. 
right? And so there are there, there's varying spectrums and, and different ways of, of, of identifying and actually um, displaying blackness. But but one thing I know is that there's a rhythm to it. There's a there's a, there's a spice, a, 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 a volume to the joy and black joy that we see, right? And so sometimes while, while it's loud and boisterous, we have to recognize that it may not be bad just because it's loud. Right. And so the, those are some of the things that, you know, uh, some students, you know, in my experience have expressed that, you know, we were just horsing around and having a good time just like everyone else, but, you know, we're always seen uh, just like what Nazneen said. And what's interesting is that the, the problem is not that if you're seeing behavior that you shouldn't address it. The issue is, is that you're, there's no balance, right? And if there's no relationship to kind of hold on to and all, you're, all I'm getting is negative from you, there's no balance. And so now my, my view of school and being in a space I don't feel welcomed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you, Nicholas. And so now we're trying to creep into a little bit of our understanding around the impact, right? And, and you know, this, this illusion that there is a difference between black joy and the joy that other experience, students experience when they're in a school space, right? And so um, we, we tend to be, as you've identified, focused and hyper-focused on our black students and connecting those behaviors to the negative. Why and how does that bias creep into the mindset of our educators such that they now are enacting a policing type of behavior for our black students? Nadia. I'll just jump on to what Nicola says, uh, said earlier. I, I can't help but um, highlight the fact that if educators are going to move on and become better as um, as they serve students, black students, then there has to be continued teaching and learning uh, to become an anti-racist. For example, you know, having more educators from diverse background within schools will absolutely help in this in, in that direction. If you have more black educators, you'll understand probably in conversations with some black educators that we have loud joy. And you know, sometimes we're having a conversation about something that is exciting and we cannot help but probably throw our hands up, clap our hands, or things like that. It doesn't make that abnormal. And then who defines what a normal, joyous occasion or behavior looks like and i've seen that for example a student saying i was just standing up at my desk i wasn't sitting and because of that the teacher highlighted that i was being disruptive but then again why is that particular behavior disruptive from a black student and not other students you asked where this is coming from why and i i think i read the Sensa and D'Angelo book, um, Is Everyone Really Equal? Um, is such a great book to read because it just gives us some foundational pieces around how we are, how we are socialized into that. And I, and I really talk to educators and my, my staff about the fact that it is so critical for us to recognize that we are biased and we have been socialized to believe this. And, and we have to stop with trying to pretend we aren't. We do see it and it is there and it is and when you read that read that book it's great because it shows you how it happens you know it shows you how we are socialized to believe that that's how come we have a white supremacist system it, it we are socialized into that 
Anthony, when you're working in your school, what kinds of things have you done to help interrupt or um, push back on uh, staff who are maybe not necessarily uh, willing to engage in the work or you know, their fragility is preventing them from engaging in the work? It's a series of questions. I mean, I ask, I mean, you know, it, there's, there's, no, there's no secret to it. Um, you've got, we're, we're educators, we're here for kids. Um, this is demonstrated, this set of interventions or this set of changes is, is, is demonstrated to help kids. It's in kids' best interest or family's best interest. Um, why can't you come along with us? It's why. It's just about why. Um, and, you know, you ask these questions and, and, and often you get down to uh, what it really is, is it's a fear of, it's, it's a fear of change. It's a fear of doing things that I haven't done before. But as as, as school leaders, we we have we, we our, our the staff has to know we're going to go along the journey with them. That means we're going to provide coverage for teachers to make changes to assessments, to make changes to certain other pedagogy that will bring in more of what the students, who the students are, into what they're teaching. It, it's time consuming, it takes work, but it's worth it. We know um, that when we do it, kids do better. Who wouldn't be on board? And if you're not, you just have to ask why, and and and, and deal with the deal with the why. You know, you talked a, so there about the uh, the role that change has in this conversation, and and you're right in that for educators, oftentimes it is not about the the wanting to do better for students. Uh, it's capacity sometimes. Nicholas, as you engage uh, kind of alongside the system, because you're not in the system, how have you um, countered or balanced or interrupted uh, the resistance uh, that you might be experiencing in your role of support for families? Well, the first thing that I'm, I'm doing is, is trying to listen, right? And listening with ears that kind of mm -hmm. understand the path. Uh, as a student and family advocate, uh, it's been going on for a long time. Uh, like I, I say, my mom was a student and family and advocate advocate because she was doing the work before me and so, so were my aunts and so were people in my community going to schools and saying, hey, like, you know, this isn't right. Um, and so I think really listening and then trying to kind of help along with the school to kind of make a repair in terms of communication. Um, because most of the times I find there's a communication breakdown between school and home um, that, that really kind of damages the relationship that doesn't allow things to progress forward. Um, especially when, when, you know, if you're, if a parent is giving school information, let's say if we're talking about over surveillance, you know, the child is coming home upset, doesn't want to go to school because they feel like they're being watched all the time or over disciplined um, or being only seen in one negative light. You know, if school, if home is hearing that and relaying back to the school, the school is not addressing those issues or coming with a plan. You know, my job is to kind of step in and try and see if I can make a plan along with the school to try and remedy those situations. And, and you know, I think that um, schools understand that um, they need to build trusting relationships with students and families. That's one uh, way in to helping repairing the harm, but also seeing um, and understanding the context of the family and the student and how they might need to, um, with that understanding, build in an approach and a strategy 
that allows for the student to thrive as opposed to withdraw or revert. I often see that in my school experiences when I'm working with my admin colleagues, uh, trying to ensure that we need to start from the ground up of building trust in relationship with our students, with our families, because what, what, I, what we have observed, when we do build that trust, parents, caregivers are willing to uh, support the decisions. They know that you're working in the interest of their student rather than against things that may be non-traditional, but at the same time, um, you know, there's room for us to be flexible, to allow for difference to be accepted in a school space. Um, you know, as I'm thinking about, I know that our listeners are going to be grappling with the approach when we engage in conversations with our students and families. And I think we have to definitely be mindful of um, how those conversations progress. And so what advice, recommendations, approaches have you taken when you are working with um, building trust with your families, but also trying to interrupt some of those behaviors with educators that might be contributing to the harm with our students? Naz, did you have something that you maybe wanted to add to that? I think one of the things that we have to start doing as if you're as as leaders and administrators is we don't have all the answers. And I think we have to stop. I mean, when we talk about working with our staff and disrupting, it is okay to say to our staff, I don't know, I'm going alongside here. I'm learning as I'm going through this process. I think that's critical as, as non-black staff, like I, as leaders, we need to do that. We don't have the answers. Things that you mentioned about the relationship piece with the families you know, I, I tell staff over and over again, it's not about you. It, it's really not about you. And what you have to stop about, but I'm trying, like, I don't understand why they're not responding. And I, you know, I'm trying to reach out where there could have been years of trauma and years of experience that people are bringing. And you know what, we have to stop with our own little, like, sometimes we have to stop with our own uh, fragility. I, I get it. We're not, we are trying. But the relationship and building trust is not as not as easy as turning to somebody and saying, you can trust me now. I'm going to work alongside you. We have to stop with that. Sometimes I think we think that that is enough. Saying that you can trust me is not necessarily going to be the way people are going to trust you. It's going to take time and you need to take some time with that. We have to be careful because we can't jump in and find the solutions just as allies. We have to be really careful to understand that we're not here to take over the space. We're not over. We're not here to take the space. We're here to learn, learn, and say, what do you need? What do you want from me? What? How can I support you? Sometimes the solution is for us to just sit and accept, and hear, and allow the space to be for people to say, I don't trust you. Mm -hmm. Hey, I understand you don't trust me, and it's okay, and I get why you don't trust me. And I think that that acknowledgement does help us advance a step forward. I 100% agree. And, you know, I think that the idea of asking and probing and trying to build that shared understanding through listening, oftentimes we always want to speak over and, and our positionality requires that we insert our power in a certain way in those conversations. And that will never be well received 
by anybody, let alone our, our students and families from the black community. And so this is an opportunity for us to um, flatten the hierarchy, I guess, if you will, to be more involved as participants in a conversation to build understanding as opposed to the leader having to make the decision in that particular space, right? Um, I know often, you know, I, when I'm when I'm working with my staff, I, I'm very careful um, around how I build um, build to conversation or if if something goes wrong, um, how it is that I'm intervening in that. And, and the comment that I, I hear back from staff, the feedback I've gotten from staff is that you have created a space for me to make a mistake and to learn out of that mistake. Nadia, in your experiences, what have you done in terms of actions to help the to help move this along? I cannot overemphasize listening. So as we talked about relationship with the family, recent we dealt with a, a situation where we had the student and um, he was not being safe in the way he was uh, playing. Dad became involved and pretty upset because dad felt that um, his um, son was being picked on, his name was coming up, going to the office too often and so forth. And so dad had contacted us and we had communicated with dad and tried to sort out the issue and put support in, in place for the student. However, in the continued conversations, we learned that dad being a part of the school system where he was traumatized by being sent to the office um, significantly more than others as a black student. And so what he saw now having his child going through the same pattern of um, over-discipline, he was just very upset. Now, had we not continued engaging in conversations with dad, then we would not have learned in listening, we learned. And personally, as someone who identifies as black, I was very teary when he talked about what he went through in school, I got it. And now moving forward, we know what is at play. And so as we interact with black families, we also have to be mindful that the learning that we're engaged in now within the system of education wasn't always there. And so they would have experienced a lot of harm and that now is could be affecting many families as they interact with schools so we have to really think about historical trauma that families are going through and how that's affecting the way that they're reacting uh to schools and and, and in terms of um educators i think it's important to kind of think about that what what is the why behind the feelings and what you're seeing like let's say a parent comes in angry Yes. What is the why behind that? What is yes. what is what is behind that anger? What is what are the the, the traumas, whether it's uh, current traumas or past traumas that are, that are informing that angry outburst? And then we have to listen to to hear. They are actually parents who are coming with real emotions and fears about their child and how that they are interacting with the system.
And may also add, you, you may have parents who, the black parents, some black parents where there's no issue with the school, but they may show up and be assertive from day one. And it's not because they're not happy with the administration or with teachers. I think because of what they may have experienced in their own lives, they are taking this, they're being proactive. Like I'm here, this is my child. You know, you, you need to ensure that my child is treated well, treated well my child will not go through the same situations that I endured. And so I feel like we always have to be mindful that there's a very good probability, there's a high probability that black families that we have, we're dealing with may have been traumatized by the, the education system. Uh, Naz, tell me a little bit more about the additional things that you think are valuable for our educators and our leaders in terms of countering or interrupting and building understandings um, with our staff around anti-Black racism, particularly around this piece around surveillance and discipline. So we've talked about surveillance and discipline in terms of looking and finding the negative behaviors that we seem to over notice in our, in our Black students. I think we also have to become really aware of the students we don't notice. What students are we not calling on? And I think there's that conversation also surveillance in terms of even who we don't see, we don't hear, we don't listen to. And I think we have to become really aware of that. We have we have started a black excellence group in our in our school. One of the things that's come out of these conversations is that some of our students have never been asked. They aren't talked to. They aren't they aren't allowed to have, they're not engaged in those conversations. They aren't asked, how do you feel about this? You know, are you feeling, and I think we have to become really aware in the classrooms and even in our own spaces about the students that are quiet, that are sitting there and saying, please don't notice me because I know that I, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. So I don't notice me. So they almost minimize their voice. And I've seen that happening in our school. It's like we talk about that, that there are some of our, we have students who we are trying to, there's some, you know, behaviors that that are challenges and we're working through them, but not all of our black students. That's, it's not every one of them. And sometimes I feel like we lose that in the conversation. And I think we have to become really aware of that because I think sometimes there are students that actually don't want to be seen. I think it's also checking to see what we're losing in our students that have a lot to offer that maybe are just quietly sitting in their classrooms doing their thing because they don't want to be heard because they don't want people to, to notice them and for them to, to get on people's radar, if you want to put it that way, you know, like I think that we have students like that too. You know, and, I, and I'm glad you, you raised that um, as the other part of the continuum of surveillance, because I would insert at this point that that is probably a, another cumulative impact of policing like policing and surveilling the lives of students in school right so so you 100%, see 100 right? so you see the the on the other side where because of over surveillance for so long of students right our families and our students are grown tired <laughs> tired and so now rather than be noticed or push back on the system it's that that hiding that that more so like if i don't say anything if i try to assimilate 
to, I'm not going to be on your radar. When you have parents saying to the kids, please don't get yourself into trouble. You know that they're hyper surveillance on black right. students or black boys. Please don't do anything. Don't do anything to bring make the teacher pay attention to you. Be quiet, just sit down. Some of yeah. our students have really internalized that message. Well, and it's, it's silencing, right? It's silencing um, voices that might well contribute positively to diverse thought in a classroom, right? But that diverse thought and that those diverse behaviors, again, deviating from the, the traditional norms of behavior expectations are not welcome in a space. When we think about um, the actions that we can take that allow us to bring welcome and belonging uh, and foster trust for our students, affinity spaces um, are a great uh, opportunity for us in our schools, right? Because in those affinity spaces, um, it allows for authentic voice to come to the forefront, right? Because you have um, shared cultural understandings often in those spaces, right? And it's not at the exclusion of allies who want to learn, but that is the role I think that um, schools, one thing I think that schools and school leaders can think about in terms of a concrete action um, for our students in those spaces. I'm not sure, Anthony, if you have had any experience with something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of affinity, affinity spaces, um, I'm in a, in a large, diverse school um at the moment and we have multitude of affinity spaces including a black student association and that that's a that's a large group at this school that's i mean the numbers vary obviously depending on what's going on it's it's um but it but it's a it's a group that encompasses the grade nines through 12s the kids come to you and the kids tell you what they need from you and one of the things that they told me there was they need uh, for me as a staff member to speak to the staff um, about their concerns. It was simply, as, as, as everybody on this panel has said, it's, you know, we, we just want to be heard. We want to be seen in more than one way. And we would like to be, have some kind of a stake in what happens in our education in the classroom. The, the, the kind of, the thing I, 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 I would really like to, um, to, to stress is the spaces for kids to let staff know what they need. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you touch on a few points there uh, around, you know, staff being a vehicle for student voice in the structures that we have, but you also touched on the role that community can play in helping us along this journey of, of interrupting and supporting students um, in, in, in their capacity to achieve their potential. And I know Nicholas, as a as a community member, you certainly are well poised to um, to to provide examples of how you know the positive role that community can play in terms of the support uh, for students in schools. Thank you. Yeah, and I just wanted to kind of touch back on the affinity spaces. It kind of I. Really? I I, I agree uh, with everything that Anthony said. Those are, are great spaces, but I think we also got to save save room for uh, it being informal as well and allowing space uh, for black children to congregate without suspicion. Uh, mm -hmm. An example of that is kind of when I was working in education, which was before this role, um, you know, we had kids would co 
constantly congregate uh, at lunchtime in a certain room. And then that room became a topic of discussion and kind of suspicion of what are they doing in there? Why are they in there? Meanwhile, the head of department had given them that space and allowed them to be. And so I think it's important to kind of remember that sometimes when, they, when, 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 when Black children are looking for safe spaces to be and they seek them out and find them, it is not suspicious. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they do come together as um, by natural way of, of that support and that feeling of safety, as you alluded to, right? That um, whether it's formal or informal, we do need to uh, honor that connection that they are building between themselves because it's serving something for them um, around their need. It's meeting their needs around likely psychological safety. Naz? I'm hearing you because I think about my past experience in other spaces and schools. It is it is interesting how we can sort of hyper, we get, what, what are they doing? Why, why is everybody gathering? Um, what exactly is going on? And I think we do have to be very cognizant of that. But I think, and as educators, but especially us as leaders and administrators, I go back to the fact that we have to unpack why we think the way we think. Think about how we have been so socialized in our thinking that we do make those assumptions. One of the most important thing, things we need to do as, as administrators in this, in this conversation is we need to do the work ourselves. I have recently dealt with a situation where I've reached out to my Black administrator colleagues and said, called a bunch of them and said, I'm dealing with this and this is help me understand and help me understand where I can do this recognizing that I'm I'm not black and am I the person even to to work through this or to do this as I'm journeying down this journey with with in the deepest way that I've ever had an opportunity to go through I have more questions than I have answers all the time but that's where I have the learning and I'm partnering and I'm talking to people that can help me understand better right you're absolutely right in that um, the work begins with us. All of our experts in the field talk about that we have to do our own personal work before we can actually move the work forward in our school spaces. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the, the things that we observe around um, surveillance and discipline of our black students. We've talked a lot about the impact uh, to well-being, psychological safety. Um, in our conversation today. And then we've actually articulated a number of really clear action, actionable steps that schools can take uh, when they engage with our students and our families. You know, building trust and connection is at the cornerstone of this. Um, we've talked about the ability to listen, ask questions to build shared understandings. And then we've even talked a lot about how do we bring the learning forward and create informal and formal spaces for our students that allow them to blossom, feel empowered and thrive ultimately. And that should be the end goal for all of our students within our building. Thank you, Nadia, Naz, Anthony and Nicholas. It has been an utmost pleasure and honor to moderate today. So appreciate your experiences and your expertise that you have brought 
to our community space today and this inaugural episode of Calling Up. Calling up. 